The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So for a while now we've been discussing together, I've been giving talks on the Buddha's teachings on the spiritual path, this path of awakening, sometimes we call it. And it's really a path of wisdom that begins when a human being has the good fortune not to be completely overwhelmed by survival, not oppressed, not dealing with terrible illness or loss, so that that human can be reflective about life and about the causes for happiness and the causes for stress for oneself and for the wider community. And then that person wakes up, they have an insight where they realize this very simple commonsensical understanding that it matters. It matters specifically how I'm showing up, how I'm relating to the present moment. It matters what qualities of the heart and mind are active right now, filtering my experience, affecting my experience, in the same way that it matters what kind of cultural um, patterns or patterns from my family of origin might be showing up. It really matters because some of them aren't very helpful or skillful. Others may be skillful and helpful. So because we realize it matters, we naturally want to pay attention to how it matters. Like, What are the skillful qualities? What are the unskillful qualities? What are the wholesome ways? What are the unwholesome ways? And we start to pay attention in the more gross aspect of our life, all our relationships, how we relate to other people, how we relate to other communities that we're surrounded with, that we interact with. And we want to bring that same sense that it matters to the more subtle work at looking at our mind and our heart. And that's what I've been talking about the last few weeks, is this work we generally call samadhi, this third of the Eightfold Path, where we're looking at these qualities of effort and energy, qualities of mindfulness, qualities of samadhi or settledness, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of how are we taking care of the heart and mind? <clears throat> are we doing a good job? Are we bringing real wisdom and kindness to our responsibility to take care of this heart and mind? Because, as we all know, when we get busy, even when our lives are pretty comfortable or privileged, even when we're getting a little busy, it feels like we can throw out the window our responsibility to take care of our heart and mind. The sense that I'll, I'll get back into balance later. You know, when, when this big task is done, when this difficult thing in my life is taken care of, then I can take care of this secondary responsibility of caring for my heart and mind. And <clears throat> part of that insight that it matters, how we're showing up as a human being matters, then we realize that can never be the second priority, like taking care of the heart and mind. It always has to be the first priority because it affects everything else. If I'm not taking care of this heart and mind, and so the mind gets dominated by greed or the mind gets dominated by fear or aversion or by just a superficiality. So then 
it's going to affect every single relationship that I have. So last week you might remember I talked about the feeling tone as one aspect of understanding, like taking the mind, the awareness, looking at the mind, just in a way as a really wise and kind parent would be very attentive and not forceful, but very attentive, very full of care and bring as much wisdom to how they would take care of an infant, right? Why wouldn't we want to take care of our mind and really observe it and get a sense of what causes it problems, what allows it to be more skillful? Why wouldn't we want to be somebody who is full of care, tender and clear and wise care for the mind? I'm just noticing that some people are saying that the sound is a little bit off. But let's just go on and uh, we'll work on it for next week. Sorry about that if you're having a hard time hearing. So as I was saying that around feeling tone, you know, the normal experience for a human being, when we're not that aware, not that mindful, haven't developed a lot of wisdom about the nature of the mind and how to take care of it, then we kind of operate a bit um, uh, just getting pushed around by whatever the initial or the immediate feeling tone might be. It might be pleasant and then we're pushed around by that. It might be unpleasant and we're pushed around by that. And that just is normal human experience. We just can't have pro or sort of can't get away from that habit of being pushed around by feeling tone. So part of what we're learning to do in a more simple environment like our daily sitting time, where conditions are relatively simple and hopefully, you know, we have the opportunity to create an environment that's not terrible, not terribly unpleasant. And then we learn to sit and even in that relatively simple and relatively pleasant environment of our daily sit, still there'll be moments that are unpleasant because of some mental activity like a memory some physical pain in the body, restlessness, whatever it might be. But in that relatively safe space of our daily sit, we learn to observe the different feeling tones come and go, that they are coming and going. So I might have a really kind of something I really want, and I can feel the excitement of that, like, oh, I could get up and eat something. I can feel the pleasantness of that excitement, I can see it bloom and I can see it fade and realize I don't have to go do that thing, that it will go away, the whole drama will go away without me always having to do something, having to intervene, having to be pushed around by that feeling tone or this feeling tone. And it's a real empowerment as a human being to realize we can still have different feeling tones coming and going, but not constantly be forced, in a sense, by habit to do something about the feeling tone. There's this other option, which is just to know there's a feeling tone. Oh, it's really unpleasant right now. It's intensely unpleasant right now. Or it's really pleasant right now. Or it's just neutral right now. 
And that's some information and I'm taking it in. I'm not oblivious to the feeling tone, taking it in. But then there's that discernment. Should Does there need to be any action because of this feeling tone? Yeah, I could, but I don't have to, right? Because I know I have this other option, which is to be intimate with what it feels like right now and just be aware of what's next. Let it come and go as it will. So that stability, that equanimity, equipoise, balance, capacity to be with feeling tone without being pushed around, really opens the door then, both in our formal sitting times, but also at other times uh, during the day. It allows us to observe the mind, the more subtle activity and subtle space of the mind. And this is where there can be a very, uh, very much deepening of insight, this understanding of the nature of the heart, mind, the nature of experience. And in Buddhism, we often talk about the deepening of that insight in terms of seeing the changing, ephemeral, insubstantial, <clears throat> unsatisfactory, ungovernable, unreliable, impersonal nature of mental experience, physical experience, any experience whatsoever. That deepening understanding of the nature of experience itself. But there's really no way to have deeper insight when my mind is still tormented and entangled and pushed around by this feeling and its habit to react to this feeling tone or this other feeling tone arising and the mind feeling compelled to react, do something about it. This is a little passage from Bhante Gunaratana's book. He wrote quite a while ago now, but still one of the real gems and just a, a way to introduce the practices from the Buddha um, here in the West. The book is called Mindfulness in Plain English. I'm guessing that many of you have read this book. And this is uh, pages 40 and 41. And he's talking about what meditation is. And he gives this really important example um, of somebody sitting and hearing a sound and then the kind of drama that unfolds. And he begins this by saying that our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid in some ways. We tune out 99% of all the sensory stimuli we actually receive and we solidify the remainder into discrete mental objects. Then we react to those mental objects in programmed, habitual ways. Right? So we can just imagine, maybe some of you even today, when we were doing the guided meditation, if the sound quality wasn't that good for you, um, you might have had a mental reaction, like, why can't Common Ground get its act together? Or, you know, what's wrong with my computer? Or... I hate technology, you know, we just kind of want to reject the whole thing, you know, if it's not perfect, I'm done. I'm done with Zoom, I'm done with live stream, I'm done with internet. And this is this, what he describes where the mind really focuses in on a particular sense contact and how the mind perceives it, the meaning 
or the way the mind recognizes or frames that sense contact, like hearing, static, or whatever the particular sense contact might be, you can just put anything in there. You could put knee pain in there or a painful emotion in there. And then there's a particular mental image, like if it's a memory, and then the mind defines it. That's that perception. It recognizes it and it says, this is what that memory is, right? It names it in a sense. And then there's a feeling tone and all that happens very quickly. No way to stop it from happening. It's not really personal how that happens. It's just the nature of how the mind's been conditioned, how it recognizes or perceives the feeling tone. It's going to happen. And then if there's no wisdom, then the mind proliferates around that contact, that perception, that feeling tone. And that's the drama, and that's where the entanglement happens, and it can keep happening, right? The entanglement, the mental activity triggers more of the same kind of contact, perception, feeling tone, reactivity, mental formations. That's the basic dynamic of mental proliferation or in Pali, Papancha. That ongoingness of our dramas, mental entanglement, sometimes they keep going until the mind is literally exhausted by its you know, entanglement. And we know this, those of us who've been meditating for years and have seen this so many times where the mind gets caught in some drama, maybe spinning for 5, 10, 15 minutes in some fashion, only to, at some point, the pain of that entanglement, of that whole sort of churning of the heart and mind, wakes us up, wakes up wisdom, and wisdom goes, oh my God, you're suffering. This is so painful. This is so heavy. And sometimes we go slip right from that to hating ourselves for being such an idiot to be caught up in thought. And then we churn with that for a while, but at least it's a fresh drama. Right now we're condemning ourselves for having been distracted. And then over time, with more and more wisdom, having seen the painful cycle so many times, wisdom just grows. And it basically learning not to feed, how to not feed the beast. This is a passage from that I've heard Joseph Goldstein share, and I think Sharon Salzberg has it in one of her books. It's uh, one of those stories that have been repeated so many times, just because it's funny and, and it's so easy for us to relate to this. But it started with a story Joseph Goldstein was sharing, where, you know, uh, if you don't know, Joseph Goldstein is one of our uh, senior teachers in the Western Insight Meditation lineage, this early Buddhist tradition that we're part of here at Common Ground. And uh, in, you know, nine-day retreats, three-month retreats, there's regular meetings, one-on-one meetings with the teacher. Somebody walks into the meeting with Joseph, says something like, I've had a terrible experience. I was meditating. I felt some tension in my jaw, in my face. I realized what an uptight person I am, how I can never get close to anyone, and probably I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Right? So even in that, those three sentences or whatever that was, you know, it started with tension in the jaw or noticing some tension around the mouth or wherever that is, in your gut, in your shoulders. And then, right, there's a perception and an unpleasant feeling, tone, and all these mental formations, mental constructions, telling ourselves a story about 
I'm so alone, nobody loves me, I'm so tight, I'm never going to get out of this, right? And then we've created that bubble, we're literally, for that time, living inside that bubble. It's what we call a hell realm. And we're trapped and oppressed by that bubble that the mind itself, the heart itself, has created and is sustaining for as long as it does that. And so Joseph being a wise teacher, you know, the person does that little bit. And Joseph, it's, uh, this is from Sharon's book where she's uh, writing about this experience. She writes, Joseph took a deep breath and said, you mean you felt some tension in your jaw? The man plowed forward saying, I'm pretty sure I'll always be tense. I'll never change. I feel hopeless. And then Joseph said, you mean you felt some tension in your jaw? The man continued barreling down this path of misery for some time, all because of a sore jaw, until Joseph interrupted him and said, you're having a painful experience. Why are you adding a horrible story about yourself? And that's the freedom that we have. We can't avoid noticing tension. Some of the tension might be just superficial. But as we settle more in our meditation practice, daily life, and in the formal sets, we'll notice layers of physical and energetic holding, tension, painful sensation in the body that don't seem to have anything to do with what's happening in that moment like the residual or the cumulative tension of having been a fearful person for a lot of our moments during our life or been a greedy person for a lot of the moments of our life. And every of those moments was like laying down a habit of being tight. So then when we become, when we train the mind to be more sensitive, more stable, more continuously aware, we begin to wake up to this energetic tension, this, these deep habits of holding. And they can be, in some cases, more located in particular places. You know, like that chronic tendency we can have, but often unnoticed, to lift the shoulders in a tense way, or clench the jaw, or pull up on the anus, or tense the gut. There's so many, you know, the knitted brow here. So many different patterns in human bodies for holding tension because of just the ordinary difficulties, let alone extraordinary difficulties, what we might call trauma. But even just the ordinary difficulties of being a human, uh, human being, the ordinary fears and the ordinary betrayals and the ordinary desires for something good to happen, something pleasant to happen, all of that tension if there's not a lot of wisdom, it feels, because this difficult thing is happening to me, it feels that the body should get involved with what the mind is doing, and the mind is tight, so the body just reflexively thinks, well, I should be tight. Not with those words, but there's that sort of mirroring between the mind and body. And if this, these patterns are laid down over and over again, then it just becomes a chronic holding in the body. And it can be quite painful to wake up to this, but very useful. Because then we can start to make different choices. 
So um, this is back to Bhante Gunaratana's uh, section in his book, Mindfulness in Plain English. These are just perceptual and mental habits. You learn to respond this way as a child by copying the perceptual habits of those around you. These perceptual responses are not inherent in the structure of the nervous system. The circuits are there, but this is not the only way that our mental machinery can be used. That which has been learned can be unlearned. The first step is to realize what you are doing as you are doing it, to stand back and quietly watch. And I remember this sort of funny moment as a child. I think I was just five or six. And um, I grew up in a large family, seven kids. And for whatever reasons, my parent, you know, parents had this idea that we don't use the living room, it's only for guests. And um, But we had to walk through the living room to get upstairs. All the kids, we all had our bedrooms upstairs, uh, shared bedrooms upstairs. So we had to walk through the living room. So there was always plastic down in the pathway you'd have to take through the living room to get to the upstairs. And then all the couches and chairs had a um, cloth over them to just in case one of the kids did the wrong thing and sat down. At least they'd be sitting down on a covering so I remember some Saturday morning, and for whatever reason, we were in the living room. Maybe we were getting ready for some guests coming, and we were cleaning up. And my parents noticed a scratch on one of the coffee tables. And I was this little precocious kid, you know, and wanting to be part of the clan. And I thought, you know, like, I, I could read them. I, you know, I was five or six. I could, I'd gotten pretty good at reading my parents. I knew what the moment called for. And so I just shouted out, damn it, or damn, something like that. Which, you know, in our house, kids don't swear. <laughs> and uh, But I wasn't uh, that wise at that point. I just sort of reading where my parents were at, and they were frustrated. And so it was like that perceptual habit. Oh, there's a scratch on the furniture. That's not good. I should get upset, right? And I was just mirroring back what I'd probably seen my parents do. And so I kind of shouted it out. Now, I, didn't, I don't remember getting punished, but I do distinctly remember the shock in their faces when they saw their little kid using that kind of a word right in front of them. Um, and that, that's the sort of thing we can begin to notice, you know, when an irritating sound comes up, an irritating smell, pain in the body. Like, think about moments when you sense that you might be getting sick. And this is especially poignant now with the coronavirus around. Because, uh, you know, every sniffle, every dry cough, whatever symptom, subtle symptom we might sense, because there's so much of a charge and fear and the unpleasantness of that fear of what might happen, it can be very easy for this to turn into some storm, some drama in the heart and the mind and in the body. So instead it could be, you know, the sniffle, the cough, it could be felt and experienced just for what it is. And the thought, this might be coronavirus, and what that feels like could be just seen and felt for what that is. So in a way, we're letting these reactions arise. We're not trying to repress or suppress the conditioned tendencies of the mind, but we're just letting them be what they are. We're not, we're kind of keeping them as simple phenomena that are that arise in the space of the knowing, sensing heart, 
But because the heart, the mind, the wisdom that's there knows not to be confused, knows how to just be intimate, then it doesn't have to lead. So mental proliferation, the drama, the entanglements arise because the wisdom doesn't know how to just be intimate with what's coming and going, just to let it, in a sense, land. So he writes, Bhante Gunaratana, this Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka, one of our elders in our early Buddhist tradition here in the West. He's been in the West for many decades now. He writes, From the Buddhist perspective, we human beings have a backward view of life. We look at what is actually the cause of suffering and we see it as happiness. Right? Like We feel that that mental proliferation, that drama, is going to lead somewhere. He continues writing, The cause of suffering is that desire aversion syndrome. Right? That spinning, that entanglement. Desire and aversion, desiring and hating, not liking, fearing, these are sort of the active dynamics of ignorance, of being distracted or not seeing clearly, not understanding deeply what's going on. He writes a little later here, Take worry. We worry a lot. Worry itself is not the problem. Worry itself is the problem. Worry is the process. It has steps. Anxiety is not just a state of existence, but a procedure. What you've got to do is look at the very beginning of that procedure, those initial stages before the process is built up ahead of steam. The very first link of that worry chain is the grasping, rejecting reaction. As soon as the, as the phenomena pops into the mind, we try mentally to grab onto it or push it away. That sets worry response in motion. Luckily, there's this handy little tool called Vipassana meditation, which you can use to short-circuit the whole mechanism. So Vipassana, what we do you know, at Common Ground, this insight meditation, we, in early Buddhism, we call often uh, this tradition in the West, we call it insight meditation because we're honoring this essential part of the Buddhist teachings, which is all about stabilizing, using calm and stability of present moment awareness, this non-reactivity, making the effort to make peace with embodiment. Right? We often talk about learning how to be aware of the body, the breathing body, the sensing body, the hearing body, seeing body, right? these five physical senses, how to be intimate without needing to do anything. It's not about being passive or disconnected, it's about being intimate, exposed in a way to the sensitivity of the body, but realizing it's okay to be exposed to the sensitivity of the body. And this really allows us to start seeing, understanding the nature of the conditioned mind. Because we can't be reacting and study the reaction at the same time. If we're identified with the reaction, it's impossible to really study it as a changing phenomena, as an impersonal phenomena, and whenever there's attachment, there's suffering, there's weight to it. He ends this little section by talking about Vipassana, this insight meditation practice we do. 
we learn to watch the arising of thought and perception with a feeling of serene detachment. We learn to view our own reactions to stimuli with calm and clarity. We begin to see ourselves reacting without getting caught up in the reactions themselves. The obsessive nature of thought slowly dies. We can still get married. We can still step out of the path of a truck, but we don't need to go through hell over either one. This escape from the obsessive nature of thought produces a whole new view of reality. It is a complete paradigm shift, a total change in the perceptual mechanism. It brings with it the bliss of emancipation from the obsessions. Because of these advantages, Buddhism views this way of looking at things as a correct view of life. And Buddhist texts call it seeing things as they really are. And so this is really the purpose. And, you know, as we've been talking about the path, we really started with seeing the gross aspects of our life as they really are. That stabilizes present moment awareness more than we start noticing more intermediate, like not-so-subtle, not-so-gross aspects of our body and mind experience, but with balance, with evenness, and we stabilize present moment awareness more. So by bringing stability of awareness to more obvious, more gross, more concrete experience, we're developing the capacity to bring that even, clear, kind, intimate presence to the more subtle aspects of our experience, into the nature of the mind itself. The simple question, is this a mind that is distracted or is this a mind that's really simple and grounded and open? Like the space of awareness in which objects of experience are coming and going, but that space of awareness isn't neurotically chasing after the objects of experience. It just knows, okay, now it feels like this, now this is being known, now this is being known. And then more and more that mind can discern how to be the space of awareness without being disturbed by the inevitable activities coming and going in that space. All the feeling tone that's going to come and go with all the perceptions, mental formations, any intentions, any reactions, how to uh, have this dispassionate presence with the activity of mind. This is what, in a way, we mean by a good sit. It doesn't mean that there is an activity of mind. It means that there's some recognition of this wisdom of dispassion so that the thinking mind, the activity of mind, is okay, whatever it is. There could be despicable thoughts, but that wise dispassion, yeah, that's just that thought coming and going. I don't need to be embarrassed. I don't need to react to that thought because it's going to go away on its own. I don't have to become the mark who doesn't want to have that despicable thought. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking that. And even if there is a reaction to the despicable thought, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that, then that can be seen with wisdom, with that dispassion. Oh yeah, that's that reaction. That's what happens sometimes. 
that can be okay, right? Because it's going to come and go. And it's that dispassion, that dispassionate awareness of the activity, the heart and mind, that clear and intimate, so not distant, not indifferent to what's happening in the heart and mind, but really present with the heart and mind. That's what allows the mind, the heart, to have even deeper insight. Right? Basically realizing the heart and mind that is independent of everything that's in motion. Realizing, you could say, non-grasping, the reality of non-grasping as Ajahn Chah talks about freedom in that way. And I think it's a very useful operational definition of freedom, awakening, enlightenment, which we can sort of romanticize and idealize. But it really is the absence of grasping, the absence of mental friction, any friction in the heart and mind. So I want to just end with um, a passage from a famous discourse, The Noble Search, where the Buddha is really talking about the path of awakening. And he really talks about it as a change in how we relate to sensuality. And remember, sensuality is a lot like what we mean by embodiment. We have this sensory um, existence. This is just the way it is. We're a sensitive creature. We smell, we taste, we hear, we touch, right? Whatever the fifth one is that I didn't mention, see maybe. <laughs> but we have these five physical senses, these strands or five strings of sensuality. And the Buddha talks about these a lot. And he said, and any practitioners tied to these five strings of sensuality, infatuated with them, have totally fallen for them, consuming them without seeing their drawbacks. Right, the drawback of attachment or being dependent on a sound, dependent on a smell, a taste, a touch, a sight, or without discerning the escape, the independence from them, should be known as having met with misfortune. Right, so as long as we're a sensitive being, without wisdom about the problems that can result from being sensitive, which is attachment, dependence, right? Thinking that if only, then I'm going to be really the person I want to be. Without understanding how to be independent of sens sensuality can be seen as having met with misfortune, met with ruin. Mara, which is this sort of, um, this archetype of all of our delusion and ignorance, right? Personification, the, they make it sort of a demon-like um, reality. Mara can do with them as he will. Just as if a wild deer were to, be, were to lie bound on a heap of snares, it should be known as having, been met, having met with misfortune, having met with ruin. The hunter can do with it as he will. When the hunter comes, it won't get away as it would like. In the same way, any practitioner tied to these five strings of sensuality 
infatuated with them, having totally fallen for them, consuming them without seeing their drawbacks or how to escape, how to be independent, should be known as having met with misfortune, met with ruin. Mara can do with them as he will. Of course, then he says the opposite, right, is possible. Not tied to these five strings of sensuality, uninfatuated with them, not totally fallen for them, consuming them, seeing the drawbacks, seeing how to be independent from them. Should be known as not having met with misfortune, not having met with ruin. Mara cannot do with them as he wills. And he gives a simile. Suppose that a wild deer is living in a wilderness glen. Carefree it walks. Carefree it stands. Carefree it sits. Carefree it lies down. Why is that? Because it has gone beyond the hunter's range. In the same way, a practitioner, quite withdrawn from sensual pleasures, withdrawn or independent from unskillful qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana, first absorption, which is really define that state of concentration, that state of stability of mind, is really defined by the mind that is not getting pushed around by the hindrances, which I'll talk about next week. So this is how we get to know the mind. Like, is this a mind that is getting pushed around by experience and by bad habits of greed and aversion? Or is this a mind that is independent, dispassionate and independent of what it's sensitive to, what it's seeing, what it's feeling, what it's perceiving? It knows how to remain balanced and even. Now, we can be practicing this all day long. I mean, just that question, is this a mind reacting, getting pushed around by my experience? Or is this a mind, like can I actually in this moment discern an evenness, a peaceful evenness or a peaceful balance, an intimate and kind and peaceful balance, even as experience comes, comes at me and now this person is coming at me with their drama or this phone call came in or this physical experience is happening but I can discern this inner state of balance, of discernment, of dispassion, that doesn't rely on being disconnected. Right? It really relies on being connected, but not confused by the exposure that's there in the present moment. That's how we develop this path. And that's really where we're going as we finish, as I finish talking about samadhi, this caring for the heart and mind. I think this might be week six of caring for the heart and mind. We'll come back to wisdom, which was the first third of the path. So we began with wisdom. We brought that wisdom that it matters to our ethical conduct with other people and communities, the world. We bring this sense that it matters to our mind and heart. This is what we've been talking about the last month or so. And then we'll come back to wisdom, like how that stability of awareness, that profound dispassion being right in the middle, but the evenness, the curiosity doesn't waver. It's really solid in a way. 
then that mind really starts to see things as they are, the underlying nature. And so wisdom deepens. And we'll come back to that in May. So it's been really nice being with everyone, wishing you all safety out there. And may we learn how to take care of ourselves and take care of each other. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.